Everyone says Henry's wife, Phoebe, has died. But to Henry, she's still alive. Theodore Dreiser, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to this vintage episode of the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Two vintage episodes are released each week, so be sure to check your feed regularly. New episodes will be available every Friday. If you like the vintage episodes, please let us know by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Become a supporter, tell your friends, order an audiobook, or send us an email. You can also give us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear if you like the older episodes. Theodore Dreiser was a leading figure of a new literary movement in America, replacing the observances of the Victorian days and talking about new social problems that reflected the industrialization of America. His best-known works are Sister Carrie, 1922, and An American Tragedy, 1925. Dreiser's works are far from perfect and tend to get longer as you read them. However, the writers before Dreiser were remarkably different than those who followed him. While perhaps not a perfect guidepost, he nevertheless showed a new path and took a few wavering steps. The Lost Phoebe is the only one of Dreiser's titles in the current classic tales canon. I've tried to return to him over the past 16 years and it just hasn't worked out. Strange, because The Lost Phoebe has some absolutely masterful moments. And now, The Lost Phoebe by Theodore Dreiser. They lived together in a part of the country which was not so prosperous as it had once been, about three miles from one of those small towns that instead of increasing in population, is steadily decreasing. The territory was not so very thickly settled, perhaps a house every other mile or so, with large areas of corn and wheat land and fallow fields that at odd seasons had been sown to timothy and clover. Their particular house was part log and part frame, the log portion being the original home of Henry's grandfather the new portion of now rain-beaten, time-worn slabs through which the wind squeaked in the chinks at times, and which several overshadowing elms and a butternut tree made picturesque and reminiscently pathetic, but a little damp, was erected by Henry when he was twenty-one and just married. That was forty-one years before. The furniture inside, like the house outside, was old and mildewy and reminiscent of an earlier day. You have seen the what-not of cherry wood, perhaps, with spiral legs and fluted top. It was there. The old-fashioned poster bed, with its ball-like protuberances and deep carving incisions, that was there also. A sadly alienated descendant of an early Jacobean ancestor. The bureau of cherry was also high and wide and solidly built, but faded-looking, and with a musty odor. The rag carpet that underlay all these sturdy examples of enduring furniture was a weak, faded, lead-and-pink-colored affair, 
woven by Phoebe Ann's own hands when she was fifteen years younger than she was when she died. The creaky wooden loom on which it had been done now stood like a dusty, bony skeleton, along with a broken rocking chair, a worm-eaten clothes-press, heaven knows how old, a lime-stained bench that had once been used to keep flowers on outside the door, and other decrepit factors of household utility in an east room that was a lean-to against this so-called main portion. All sorts of other broken-down furniture were about this place, an antiquated clothes horse cracked in two of its ribs, a broken mirror in an old cherry frame, which had fallen from a nail and cracked itself three days before their youngest son, Jerry, died. An extension hat rack, which had had porcelain knobs on the ends of its pegs, and a sewing machine, long since outdone in its clumsy mechanism by rivals of a newer generation. The orchard to the east of the house was full of gnarled old apple trees, worm-eaten as to trunks and branches, and fully ornamented with green and white lichens, so that it had a sad, greenish-white, silvery effect in the moonlight. The low outhouses, which had once housed chickens, a horse or two, a cow, and several pigs, were covered with patches of moss as to their roof, and the sides had been free of paint for so long that they were blackish-gray as to color and a little spongy. The picket fence in front, with its gate squeaky and askew, and the side fences of the skate and rider type were in an equally run-down condition. As a matter of fact, they had aged synchronously with the persons who lived there, old Henry Rafe Snyder and his wife, Phoebe Ann. They had lived here, these two, ever since their marriage, forty-eight years before, and Henry had lived here before that, from his childhood up. His father and mother, well along in years when he was a boy, had invited him to bring his wife there when he had first fallen in love and decided to marry, and he had done so. His father and mother were the companions of himself and his wife for ten years after they were married, when both died, and then Henry and Phoebe were left with their five children growing lustily apace. But all sorts of things had happened since then. Of the seven children, all told, that had been born to them, three had died. One girl had gone to Kansas, one boy had gone to Sioux Falls, never to be heard of after. Another boy had gone to Washington, and the last girl lived five counties away in the same state, but was so burdened with cares of her own and she rarely gave them a thought. Time and a commonplace home life that had never been attractive had weaned them thoroughly, so that wherever they were, they gave little thought as to how it might be with their father and mother. Old Henry Rafe Snyder and his wife Phoebe were a loving couple. You perhaps know how it is with simple natures that fasten themselves like lichens on the stones of circumstance and weather their days to a crumbling conclusion. The great world sounds widely, but it has no call for them. They had no soaring intellect. The orchard, the meadow, the cornfield, the pig pen, and the chicken lot measure the range of their human activities. When the wheat is headed, it is reaped and threshed. When the corn is browned and frosted, it is cut and shocked. When the timothy is in full head, it is cut, and the haycock erected. After that comes winter, 
with the hauling of grain to market, the sawing and splitting of wood, the simple chores of fire-building, meal-getting, occasional repairing and visiting. Beyond these and the changes of weather, the snows, the rains, and the fair days, there are no immediate significant things. All the rest of life is a far-off, clamorous phantasmagoria, flickering like northern lights in the night, and sounding as faintly as cowbells tinkling in the distance. Old Henry and his wife Phoebe were as fond of each other as it is possible for two old people to be who have nothing else in this life to be fond of. He was a thin, old man, seventy when she died, a queer, crotchety person with coarse gray-black hair and beard, quite straggly and unkempt. He looked at you out of dull, fishy, watery eyes that had deep brown crow's feet at the sides. His clothes, like the clothes of many farmers, were aged and angular and baggy, standing out at the pockets, not fitting about the neck, protuberant and worn at elbow and knee. Phoebe Ann was thin and shapeless, a very umbrella of a woman, clad in shabby black and with a black bonnet for her best wear. As time had passed, they had only themselves to look after. Their movements had become slower and slower, their activities fewer and fewer. The annual keep of pigs had been reduced from five to one grunting porker, and the single horse which Henry now retained was a sleepy animal, not overnourished and not very clean. The chickens, of which formerly there was a large flock, had almost disappeared, owing to ferrets, foxes, and the lack of proper care which produces disease. The former healthy garden was now a straggling memory of itself, and the vines and flower beds that formerly ornamented the windows and dooryard had now become choking thickets. A will had been made, which divided the small, tax-eaten property equally among the remaining four, so that it was really of no interest to any of them. Yet these two lived together in peace and sympathy, only that now and then old Henry would become unduly cranky, complaining almost invariably that something had been neglected or mislaid, which was of no importance at all. Phoebe, where's my corn knife? You ain't never minded to let my things alone no more. Now you hush, Henry, his wife would caution him in a cracked and squeaky voice. If you don't, I'll leave you. I'll get up and walk out of here some day, and then where would you be? You ain't got anybody but me to look after you. So you just behave yourself. Your corn knife's on the mantle, where it always been, unless you're going to put it somewhere else. Old Henry, who knew his wife would never leave him in any circumstances, used to speculate at times as to what he would do if she were to die. That was the one leaving that he really feared. As he climbed on the chair at night to wind the old, long-pendulumed, double-weighted clock, or went finally to the front and to the back door to see that they were safely shut in, it was a comfort to know that Phoebe was there properly ensconced on her side of the bed, and that if he stirred restlessly in the night, she would be there to ask what he wanted. Now, Henry, do lie still. You're as restless as a chicken. Well, I can't sleep, Phoebe. Well, you needn't roll so anyhow. You can let me sleep. This usually reduced him to a state of somnolent ease. If she wanted a pail of water, it was a grumbling pleasure for him to get it. 
and if she did rise first to build the fires, he saw that the wood was cut and placed within easy reach. They divided this simple world nicely between them. As the years had gone on, however, fewer and fewer people had called. They were well known for a distance of as much as ten square miles as old Mr. and Mrs. Rafe Snyder, honest, moderately Christian, but too old to be really interesting any longer. The writing of letters had become an almost impossible burden, too difficult to continue or even negotiate via others, although an occasional letter still did arrive from the daughter in Pemberton County. Now and then some old friend stopped with a pie or a cake or a roasted chicken or duck, or merely to see that they were well. But even these kindly-minded visits were no longer frequent. One day, in the early spring of her sixty-fourth year, Mrs. Rafe Snyder took sick, and from a low fever passed into some indefinable ailment which, because of her age, was no longer curable. Old Henry drove to Swinnerton, the neighboring town, and procured a doctor. Some friends called, and the immediate care of her was taken off his hands. Then one chill spring night she died, and old Henry, in a fog of sorrow and uncertainty, followed her body to the nearest graveyard, an unattractive space with a few pines growing in it. Although he might have gone to the daughter in Pemberton or sent for her if it was really too much trouble, and he was too weary and fixed. It was suggested to him at once by one friend and another that he should come to stay with them a while, but he did not see fit. He was so old and so fixed in his notions and so accustomed to the exact surroundings he had known all his days that he could not think of leaving. He wanted to remain near where they had put his Phoebe, and the fact that he would have to lie alone, did not trouble him in the least. The living children were notified, and the care of him offered if he would leave. But he would not. I can make a shift for myself, he continually announced to old Dr. Morrow, who had attended his wife in this case. I can cook a little, and besides, don't take much more than coffee and bread in the morning to satisfy me. I'll get along now well enough. You just let me be and after many pleadings and proffers of advice, with supplies of coffee and bacon and baked bread duly offered and accepted, he was left to himself. For a while he sat idly outside his door, brooding in the spring sun. He tried to revive his interest in farming, and to keep himself busy and free from thought by looking after the fields, which of late had been much neglected. It was a gloomy thing to come in of an evening, however, or in the afternoon, and find no shadow of Phoebe, where everything suggested her. By degrees, he put a few of her things away. At night, he sat beside his lamp, and read in the papers that were left him occasionally, or in a Bible that he had neglected for years. But he could get little solace from these things. Mostly he held his hand over his mouth, and looked at the floor as he sat and thought of what had become of her and how soon he himself would die. He made a great business of making his coffee in the morning and frying himself a little bacon at night. But his appetite was gone. The shell in which he had been housed so long seemed vacant, and its shadows were suggestive of immedicable griefs. 
so we lived quite dolefully for five long months, and then a change began. It was one night, after he had looked after the front and the back door, wound his clock, blown out the light, and gone through all the self-same motions that he had indulged in for years, that he went to bed, not so much to sleep as to think. It was a moonlit night, the green lichen-covered orchard just outside, and to be seen from his bed where he now lay, was a silvery affair, sweetly spectral. The moon shone through the east windows, throwing the pattern of the panes on the wooden floor, and making the old furniture, to which he was accustomed, stand out dimly in the room. As usual, he had been thinking of Phoebe, and the years when they had been young together, and of the children who had gone, and the poor shift he was making of his present days. The house was coming to be in a very bad state indeed. The bedclothes were in disorder and not clean, for he made a wretched shift of washing. It was a terror to him. The roof leaked, causing things, some of them, to remain damp for weeks at a time. But he was getting into that brooding state, where he would accept anything rather than exert himself. He preferred to pace slowly to and fro, or to sit and think. By twelve o'clock on this particular night he was asleep, however, and by two had waked again. The moon by this time had shifted to a position on the western side of the house, and it now shone in through the windows of the living room and those of the kitchen beyond. A certain combination of furniture, a chair near a table with his coat on it, the half-open kitchen door cast in a shadow, and the position of a lamp near a paper gave him an exact representation of Phoebe leaning over the table, as he had often seen her do in life. It gave him a great start. Could it be she? Or her ghost? He had scarcely ever believed in spirits, and still he looked at her fixedly in the feeble half-light, his old hair tingling oddly at the roots, and then sat up. The figure did not move. He put his thin legs out of the bed and sat looking at her, wondering if this could really be Phoebe. They had talked of ghosts often in their lifetime, of apparitions and omens, but they had never agreed that such things could be. It had never been a part of his wife's creed that she could have a spirit that could return to walk the earth. Her afterworld was quite a different affair, a vague heaven, no less, from which the righteous did not trouble to return. Yet here she was now, bending over the table in her black skirt and gray shawl, her pale profile outlined against the moonlight. Phoebe, he called, thrilling from head to toe and putting out one bony hand. Have you come back? The figure did not stir and he arose and walked uncertainly to the door, looking at it fixedly the while. As he drew near, however, the apparition resolved itself into its primal content, his old coat over the high-backed chair, the lamp by the paper, the half-open door. Well, he said to himself, his mouth open, I thought sure I saw her. And he ran his hand strangely and vaguely through his hair, the while his nervous tension relaxed vanished as it had, it gave him the idea that she might return. Another night, 
Because of this first delusion, and because his mind was now constantly on her, and he was old, looked out of the window that was nearest his bed and commanded a hen coop and pig pen and part of the wagon shed, and there, a faint mist exuding from the damp of the ground, he thought he saw her again. It was one of those little wisps of mist, one of those faint exhalations of the earth that rise in a cool night after a warm day and flicker like small white cypresses of fog before they disappear. In life, it had been a custom of hers to cross this lot from her kitchen door to the pig pen to throw in any scrap that was left in her cooking, and here she was again. He sat up and watched it strangely, doubtfully, because of his previous experience, but inclined, because of the previous titillation that passed over his body, to believe that spirits really were, and that Phoebe, who would be concerned because of his lonely state, must be thinking about him, and hence returning. What other way would she have? How otherwise could she express herself? It would be within the province of her charity to do so, and like her loving interest in him. He quivered and watched it eagerly, but a faint breath of air stirring, it wound away toward the fence and disappeared. A third night, as he was actually dreaming some ten days later, she came to his bedside and put her hand on his head. Poor Henry, she said, it's too bad. He roused out of his sleep, actually to see her, he thought, moving from his bedroom into the one living room, her figure a shadowy mass of black. The weak straining of his eyes caused little points of light to flicker about the outlines of her form. He arose, greatly astonished, walked the floor in the cool room, convinced that Phoebe was coming back to him. If he only thought sufficiently, if he made it perfectly clear by his feeling that he needed her greatly, she would come back, this kindly wife, and tell him what to do. She would perhaps be with him much of the time, in the night anyhow, and that would make him less lonely, his state more endurable. In age, and with the feeble, it is not such a far cry from the subtleties of illusion to actual hallucination, and in due time this transition was made for Henry. Night after night he waited, expecting her return. Once in his weird mood, he thought he saw a pale light moving about the room, and another time he thought he saw her walking in the orchard after dark. It was one morning when the details of his lonely state were virtually unendurable that he woke with the thought that she was not dead. How he had arrived at this conclusion, it is hard to say. His mind had gone. In its place was a fixed illusion. He and Phoebe had had a senseless quarrel. He had reproached her for not leaving his pipe where he was accustomed to find it, and she had left. It was an aberrated fulfillment of her old jesting threat that if he did not behave himself, she would leave him. I guess I could find you again, he had always said, but her crackling threat had always been, You'll not find me if I ever leave you. I guess I can get some place where you can't find me. This morning, when he arose, he did not think to build a fire in the customary way or to grind his coffee and cut his bread, as was his wont, but solely to meditate as to where he could search for her and how he should induce her to come back. 
Recently, the one horse had been dispensed with because he found it cumbersome and beyond his needs. He took down his soft crush hat after he addressed himself, a new glint of interest and determination in his eye, and taking his black crook cane from behind the door, where he'd always placed it, started out briskly to look for her among the nearest neighbors. His old shoes clumped soundly in the dust as he walked, and his gray-black locks, now grown rather long, straggled out in a dramatic fringe or halo from under his hat. His short coat stirred busily as he walked, and his hands and face were peaked and pale. "'Why, hello, Henry. Where you going this morning?' inquired Farmer Dodge, who, hauling a load of wheat to market, encountered him on the public road. He had not seen the aged farmer in months, not since his wife's death, and he wondered now, seeing him looking so spry. "'You ain't seen Phoebe, have you?' inquired the old man, looking up quizzically. "'Phoebe who?' inquired Farmer Dodge, not for the moment connecting the name with Henry's dead wife. "'Why, my wife Phoebe, of course. Who do you suppose I mean?' He stared up with a pathetic sharpness of glance from under his shaggy gray eyebrows. "'Well, I swine, Henry. You ain't joking, are you?' said the solid Dodge, a Percy man with a smooth, hard, red face. "'It can't be your wife you're talking about. She's dead.' "'Dead shucks,' retorted the demented Rafe Snyder. "'She left me early this morning while I was sleeping. She always got up to build a fire, but she's gone now. We had a little spat last night, and I guess that's the reason, but I guess I can find her. She's gone over to Matilda Races. That's where she's gone.' He started briskly up the road leaving the amazed Dodge to stare in wonder after him. Well, I'll be switched, he said aloud to himself. He's gone clear out in his head. That poor old feller's been living down there till he's gone out in his mind. I'll have to notify the authorities. And he flicked his whip with great enthusiasm. Get up, he said, and was off. Rafe Snyder met no one else in this poorly populated region, till he reached the whitewashed fence of Matilda Race and her husband three miles away. He had passed several other houses en route, but these, not being within the range of his illusion, were not considered. His wife, who had known Matilda well, must be here. He opened the picket gate, which guarded the walk, and stamped briskly up to the door. "'Why, Mr. Rafe Snyder!' exclaimed old Matilda herself, a stout woman, looking out of the door in an answer to his knock. What brings you here this morning? Is Phoebe here? He demanded eagerly. Phoebe who? What Phoebe? Replied Mrs. Race, curious as to this sudden development of energy on his part. Why, my Phoebe, of course, my wife Phoebe. Who do you suppose? Ain't she here now? Lawsy me, exclaimed Mrs. Race, opening her mouth. You poor man. So you're clean out in your mind now. You come right in and sit down. I'll get you a cup of coffee. Of course your wife ain't here, but you come in and sit down. I'll find her for you after a while. I know where she is. The old farmer's eyes softened and he entered. He was so thin and pale a specimen, pantalooned and patriarchal, that he aroused Mrs. Race's extremist sympathy as he took off his hat and laid it on his knees quite softly and mildly. We had a quarrel last night, and she left me, he volunteered. Laws, laws, sighed Mrs. Race, 
there being no one present with whom to share her astonishment as she went to her kitchen. The poor man. Now somebody's just got to look after him. He can't be allowed to run around the country this way, looking for his dead wife. It's terrible. She boiled him a pot of coffee and brought in some of her new baked bread and fresh butter. She set out some of her best jam and put a couple of eggs to boil, lying wholeheartedly all the while. Now you just sit right there, Uncle Henry, till Jake comes in, and I'll send him to look for Phoebe. I think it's more than likely she's over to Swinnerton with some of her friends. Anyhow, we'll find out. Now you just drink this coffee and eat this bread. You must be tired. You've had a long walk this morning. Her idea was to take counsel with Jake, her man, and perhaps have him notify the authorities. She bustled about, meditating on the uncertainties of life, while old Rafe Snyder thrummed on the rim of his hat with his pale fingers and later ate abstractedly of what she offered. His mind was on his wife, however, and since she was not here or did not appear, it wandered vaguely away to a family by the name of Murray, miles away in another direction. He decided after a time that he would not wait for Jake Race to hunt his wife, but would seek her for himself. He must be on and urge her to come back. Well, I'll be going, he said, getting up and looking strangely about him. I guess she didn't come here after all. She went over to the Murray's, I guess. I'll not wait any longer, Miss Race. There's a lot to do over to the house today. And out he marched in the face of her protests, taking to the dusty road again in the warm spring sun, his cane striking the earth as he went. It was two hours later that this pale figure of a man appeared in the Murray's doorway, dusty, perspiring, eager. He had tramped all of five miles, and it was noon. An amazed husband and wife of sixty heard his strange query and realized also that he was mad. They begged him to stay to dinner, intending to notify the authorities later and see what could be done. But though he stayed to partake of a little something, he did not stay long and was off again to another distant farmhouse. His idea of many things to do and his need of Phoebe impelling him. So it went for that day and the next, and the next, the circle of his inquiry ever widening. The process by which a character assumes the significance of being peculiar, his antics weird yet harmless, in such a community is often involute and pathetic. This day, as has been said, saw Rafe Snyder at other doors, eagerly asking his unnatural question and leaving a trail of amazement, sympathy, and pity in his wake. Although the authorities were informed, the county sheriff no less, it was not deemed advisable to take him into custody. For when those who knew old Henry and had for so long reflected on the condition of the county insane asylum, a place which, because of the poverty of the district, was of staggering aberration and sickening environment, it was decided to let him remain at large. For, strange to relate, it was found on investigation that at night he returned peaceably enough to his lonesome domicile, there to discover whether his wife had returned, and to brood in loneliness until the morning. Who would lock up a thin, eager, seeking old man with iron-gray hair and an attitude of kindly, innocent inquiry, particularly when he was so well known for a past of only kindly servitude and reliability? Those who had known him best rather agreed that he should be allowed to roam at large. He could do no harm. 
There are many who are willing to help him as to food, old clothes, the odds and ends of his daily life, at least at first. His figure after a time became not so much a commonplace as an accepted curiosity, and the replies, Why, no, Henry, I ain't seen her. Or, No, Henry, she ain't been here today. Were more customary. For several years thereafter then, he was an odd figure in the sun and rain, on dusty roads and muddy ones, encountered occasionally in strange and unexpected places, pursuing his endless search. Under nourishment after a time, although the neighbors and those who knew his history gladly contributed from their store, affected his body, for he walked much and ate little. The longer he roamed the public highway in this manner, the deeper became his strange hallucination, and finding it harder and harder to return from his more and more distant pilgrimages, he finally began taking a few utensils with him from his home, making a small package of them, in order that he might not be compelled to return. In an old tin coffee pot of large size, he placed a small tin cup, a knife, fork, and spoon, some salt and pepper, and to the outside of it, by a string forced through a pierced hole, he fastened a plate, which could be released, and which was his woodland table. It was no trouble for him to secure the little food that he needed, and with a strange, almost religious dignity, he had no hesitation in asking for that much. By degrees his hair became longer and longer, his once black hair became an earthen brown, and his clothes threadbare and dusty. For all the three years he walked, and none knew how wide were his perambulations, nor how he survived the storms and cold. They could not see him, with homely rural understanding and forethought, sheltering himself in haycocks or by the sides of cattle, whose warm bodies protected him from the cold, and whose dull understandings were not opposed to his harmless presence. Overhanging rocks and trees kept him at times from the rain, and a friendly hayloft or corn crib was not above his humble consideration. The involute progression of hallucination is strange. From asking at doors and being constantly rebuffed or denied, he finally came to the conclusion that although his Phoebe might not be in any of the houses at the doors of which he inquired, she might nevertheless be within the sound of his voice. And so from patient inquiry, he began to call sad occasional cries that ever and anon waked the quiet landscapes and ragged hill regions, and set to echoing his thin, Oh, Phoebe! Oh, Phoebe! It had a pathetic, albeit insane, ring, and many a farmer or plowboy came to know it even from afar and say, There goes old Rafe Snyder. Another thing that puzzled him greatly after a time, and after many hundreds of inquiries, was when he no longer had any particular dooryard in view, and no special inquiry to make which way to go. These crossroads, which occasionally led him in four or even six directions, came after a time to puzzle him. But to solve this naughty problem, which became more and more of a puzzle, there came to his aid another hallucination. Phoebe's spirit or some power of the air, or wind, or nature, would tell him. If he stood at the center of the parting of the ways, closed his eyes, turned thrice about, and called, Oh, Phoebe, twice, and then threw his cane straight before him, 
That would surely indicate which way to go for Phoebe. Or one of these mystic powers would surely govern its direction and fall. In whichever direction it went, even though this was not infrequently the case, it took him back along the path he had already come, or across fields. He was not so far gone in his mind, but that he gave himself ample time to search before he called again. Also, the hallucination seemed to persist that at some time he would surely find her. There were hours when his feet were sore and his limbs weary, when he would stop in the heat to wipe his seamed brow or in the cold to beat his arms, sometimes after throwing away his cane and finding it indicating the direction from which he had just come, he would shake his head wearily and philosophically, as if contemplating the unbelievable or an untoward fate, and then start briskly off, his strange figure coming finally to be known in the farthest reaches of three or four counties. Old Reef Snyder was a pathetic character, his fame was wide. Near a little town called Watersville, in Greene County, perhaps four miles from that minor center of human activity, there is a place of precipice locally known as the Red Cliff. A sheer wall of red sandstone, perhaps a hundred feet high, which raised its sharp face for half a mile or more above the fruitful cornfields and orchards that lay beneath and which was surmounted by a thick grove of trees. The slope that slowly led up to it from the opposing side was covered by a rank growth of beech, hickory, and ash, through which threaded a number of wagon tracks crossing at various angles. In fair weather, it had become old Rafe Snyder's habit, so inured was he by now to the open, to make his bed in some such path of trees as this to fry his bacon or boil his eggs at the foot of some tree before laying himself down for the night. Occasionally, so light and inconsequential was his sleep, he would walk at night. More often, the moonlight or some sudden wind stirring in the trees or a reconnoitering animal arousing him, he would sit up and think or pursue his quest in the moonlight or the dark, a strange unnatural, half-wild, half-savage-looking, but utterly harmless creature, calling at lonely road crossings, staring at dark and shuttered houses, and wondering where, where Phoebe could really be. That particular lull that comes in the systole-diastole of this earthly ball at two o'clock in the morning invariably aroused him, and though he might not go any farther, he would sit up, and contemplate the darkness or the stars, wondering. Sometimes in the strange processes of his mind, he would fancy that he saw, moving among the trees, the figure of his lost wife. And then he would get up to follow, taking his utensils always on a string and his cane. If she seemed to evade him too easily, he would run or plead, or, suddenly losing track of the fancied figure, stand awed or disappointed, grieving for the moment over the almost insurmountable difficulties of his search. It was in the seventh year of these hopeless peregrinations, in the dawn of a similar springtime to that in which his wife had died, that he came at last one night to the vicinity of this selfsame patch that crowned the rise 
to the red cliff. His far-flung king, used as a divining rod at the last crossroads, had brought him thither. He had walked many, many miles. It was after ten o'clock at night, and he was very weary. Long wandering and little eating had left him but a shadow of his former self. It was a question now not so much of physical strength, but of spiritual endurance which kept him up. He had scarcely eaten this day, and now, exhausted, he set himself down in the dark to rest and possibly to sleep. Curiously on this occasion, a strange suggestion of the presence of his wife surrounded him. It would not be long now. He counseled with himself, although the long months had brought him nothing, until he should see her, talk to her. He fell asleep after a time, his head on his knees. At midnight the moon began to rise, and at two in the morning, his wakeful hour, was a large silver disk shining through the trees to the east. He opened his eyes when the radiance became strong, making a silvery pattern at his feet and lighting the woods with strange lusters and silvery shadowy forms. As usual, his old notion that his wife must be near occurred to him on this occasion, and he looked about him with a speculative anticipatory eye. What was it that moved in the distant shadows along the path by which he had entered? A pale, flickering will-o'-the-wisp that bobbed gracefully among the trees and riveted his expectant gaze. Moonlight and shadows combined to give it a strange form and a stranger reality. This fluttering of bog fire or dancing of wandering fireflies, was it truly his lost Phoebe? By a circuitous route it passed about him, and in his fevered state he fancied that he could see the very eyes of her, not as she was when he had last seen her in the black dress and shawl, but now a strangely younger Phoebe, gayer, sweeter, the one whom he had known years before as a girl. Old Rafe Snyder got up. He had been expecting and dreaming of this hour all these years. And now as he saw the feeble light dancing lightly before him, he peered at it questioningly, one thin hand in his gray hair. Of a sudden there came to him now, for the first time in many years, the full charm of her girlish figure, as he had known it in boyhood, the pleasing sympathetic smile, the brown hair, the blue sash she had once worn about her waist at a picnic, her gay, graceful movements. He walked about the base of the tree, straining with his eyes, forgetting for once his cane and utensils, and following eagerly after. On she moved before him, a will-o'-the-wisp of the spring, a little flame above her head, and it seemed as though, among the small saplings of ash and beech, and the thick trunks of hickory and elm, that she signaled with a young, a lightsome hand. Oh, Phoebe, Phoebe, he called, have you really come? Have you really answered me? and hurrying faster. He fell once, scrambling lamely to his feet, only to see the light in the distance dancing elusively on. On and on he hurried, until he was fairly running, 
brushing his ragged arms against the trees, striking his hands and face against impeding twigs. His hat was gone. His lungs were breathless. His reason quite astray. When coming to the edge of the cliff, he saw her below, among a silvery bed of apple trees now blooming in the spring. Oh, Phoebe, he called. Oh, Phoebe. Oh, no, don't leave me. And feeling the lure of a world where love was young, and Phoebe, as this vision presented her, a delightsome epitome of their quantum youth, he gave a gay cry of, Oh, wait, Phoebe! and leaped. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this vintage episode of The Lost Phoebe by Theodore Dreiser. If you've enjoyed this book, you may also enjoy Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte and Ball of Fat by Guy de Maupassant. You can find these and other classic titles at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. Become a monthly supporter and save $8 every month. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me next time, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper.